0: And you may be seated, all but the Michaud family, if you would please come forward this morning. We get the delight this morning to celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ as a congregation by also celebrating in both sacraments, the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of baptism. What a wonderful joy this is, a day undoubted that you will remember. A Christmas morn, a date you won't have to inscribe, one that will constantly be on your heart and it's a joy for us to enter into this moment with you as a family and to share in the celebration of the gift of a child which the Lord gives to us. It is His blessing to give to us children and it is a child that He has given to us this day that reminds us of His redemption and of his love. And indeed, it is this covenant child, sweet Eliza, that today we come into the presence of the Lord and we commend his promises to you and to her and to all of us who bear witness of his grace. I want to simply remind you, people of the Lord, of the promises of God to families extending from one generation to the next you will find in the bulletin a litany of scriptures from Acts 2, Genesis 17, and from Acts 16, combined together to reveal God's promises not only to believers and those who trust in Him, but also to the children of believers, that the same promises of which Matt and Jessica have embraced are extended to their children. Even unto a thousand generations. Listen to the promises of God. For to you is the promise and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto you and to your seed after you. Therefore believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your house. We remember that salvation and the promise of that salvation as we revel in the joy and in the sacrament of baptism. Well, Matt and Jessica, a few questions for you and then to you, the people of the Lord, as we together enter in to this promise. Do you your own as well as your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ doing grace of the Holy Spirit. Do you? We do. And do you claim God's promises for her? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus and only to the Lord Jesus for her salvation just as you do for your own? Do you? We do. And do you now consecrate your child to God and will you in humble reliance upon His sovereign grace set before her a godly example Praying with and for her, teaching her the good hope of the gospel, opening to her the truth of the scriptures, and striving by every means of grace that God provides to bring her up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Do you? We do. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of this local congregation, you too enter into this covenant in the sight of the Lord. Entering in with this couple, acknowledging that they need our help, the body of Christ, the raising of children, that they might indeed be conformed into the image of Christ, savingly embrace Him, formed into His character. And so I ask you, covenant community, will you joyously commit to assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child. And if you answer in the affirmative, just raise your hand really high so they can see it and we can all see it. Praise be to the Lord. What an encouragement. A lot of future babysitters out there who just raised their hand. Tiffany, come on around here. Sweet Eliza, is she asleep? She is really asleep. This is going to be a rude awakening for her. Look at this precious thing. Oh, my goodness gracious. This is a keeper right here. Matt, what is your child's given name? Eliza Ann. Eliza Ann Michaud. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father in heaven, just as we see those squirms with this water dripping upon her head we pray that as it almost awakes her from the physical that she is in, that your Spirit, through the power of the Gospel, would one day indeed awaken her in soul. That you would be to her a Savior and a Lord. That you would indeed hold true to your promises. And the promises that have extended throughout generations upon generations would be true and realized in her heart. That she would be a woman among women. A Ruth. An Esther. And today on this Christmas morn, would you set her apart, even in the way you set apart a Mary. Special as Mary is alone. You can do great things. Through your children, daughters of the King, set her apart for your glory and manifest good, truth, and beauty in and through her in every way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Yes Jesus loves me. Yes Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amazing. Amazing. Wow, is she always this good? Absolutely. Yes. No, okay. Oh. It's usually even better, huh? Wow. Incredible joy to rehearse those amazing promises together. And to be able to do so on a Christmas morning such as this. Oh, it's good to be with all of you today. What a special grace this is. To be able to get up on a Sunday morning and to open up God's Word with you is a privilege among all privileges, I can assure you. And today I want to just look at one little verse, but it's not little, it packs an incredible message, a powerful one. John chapter 1, verse 14. Please give attention to the reading of God's Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before your word and with eager anticipation on this Christmas morn, come to behold the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, would you grant the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit now and awaken us to the reality of your love that we might indeed be changed from one degree of glory to the next and further prepared for the day in which you will return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come even now by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's unusual to turn to the gospel of John for many during the Christmas season. It's not the first gospel that we think of when we think of the Christmas story. We think of The Gospel of Matthew, but maybe most prominently the Gospel of Luke, read even earlier in our service this morning. One of the reasons we don't think of the Gospel of John in quite the same way that we do Matthew and Luke is because John's Gospel is different. It begins in a completely different way than the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which give us a synopsis of Jesus's life from his birth his ministry his death his resurrection but John doesn't begin there John begins well at the beginning John chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word or the word was with God and the word was God that little phrase, in the beginning, John really means the beginning. He's going back to Genesis chapter 1. He's opening his gospel, patterning the language after the very opening of the Bible itself. Now in doing that, John is trying to give us a clue as to how to read his gospel. He's distinguishing his gospel from the other gospels he's letting us know that to understand the tale that he is going to tell we're going to have to know the very beginning we're going to have to know not just the the facts and the dates and the places and the events of Jesus' life but we're going to have to know the redemptive historical narrative of the bible we're going to have to go back to the beginning to really understand what all of this is about But because John is going back to the beginning, but also spends the primacy of this entire gospel speaking about Jesus, he's telling us something really important about Christ. He's telling us that the entirety of the biblical story finds its meaning, its climax, its culmination in Jesus. That the message of the whole Bible is Christ. And in a very real sense, the whole message of the Bible is summarized right here in verse 14 of John chapter 1. Now to see that, I want to look at this one verse in three ways to help us see the whole story of the Bible. I want you to see first the word that made the world. And then I want you to see the words that unmade the world. And then I believe John's main focus, the word made flesh that redeemed the world. The word that made the world, the words that unmade the world, and the word made flesh that redeems the world. That's what we're going to look at together in just a few minutes that we have. The word that made the world. Now, what word is John referring to? What's he saying here in verse 14 when he says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, at the most fundamental level, going back to creation, he's talking about the word that spoke the very world in being. Genesis 1, we're not just told that God created the world, we're actually told how God created the world. In Genesis 1-3, we read, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1-6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. In Genesis 1-9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place so that the dry land may appear. The Word is the Word that spoke all things into being. It's it's what the writer of Colossians, the Apostle Paul will say when he speaks of Jesus as the very image of God who sustains the world by the word of his power. Remarkably, John says here that this word that was there in the beginning that came and spoke into the formlessness and void, that word, that creative word, has now become flesh. To put it a different way, the word that spoke creation into being is the word that became a part of creation. The word that made the world is the word that has now entered the world. And as he describes it here, dwells among us. C.S. Lewis says that the God of Christianity is the most unique among all gods in the world for this reason, that he's a God who not merely created the world or scripted it like a Shakespeare who writes a Macbeth or a Hamlet. But this God, the God of Christianity, actually wrote himself into the play. He is not just the author of all that happens, but he is indeed the actor, the lead actor of everything that takes place. Indeed, I think what John is trying to say here in this passage, he is the hero of the story that he's writing. Now, in order for the word to make flesh, this Jesus Christ to be the hero, to use the language of hero to describe him means he's a rescuer. We don't call anyone a hero unless they save the day. Well, that's why this baby has come. That's who this Jesus is. But the question we have to ask is, why does the world need saving? If this word needs to enter the world in order to save the world, why does the world need saving in the first place? And this leads us to the second point, the words that unmade the world. You see, in verse 14, that little phrase, dwelt among us, is a massive clue. A massive clue to the single most important problem that the world has been facing. As we read the story of the Scripture, we learn that not only did words make the world, but we learn that it was the words of the evil one that unmade the world. Not the life-creating words of God who who made all things and through His words blesses all things, but it was the serpent who came with a death-spreading word, And in Genesis 3, we're told those cunning and deceptive words of the serpent came to raise doubt within the heart of Eve. And notice how the serpent raised that doubt. Well, he attacked the words of God. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he really say, are you certain that you can trust the word that made everything, the word that sustains everything? Are you sure that his character... Is something that you can trust? Are you sure? Did God really say? Did you get the facts straight, Eve? Oh, yes, he did say that. And if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will surely die. Oh, you're not going to die, Eve. In fact, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Those words, those words, the serpent's words ultimately persuaded Eve to take the fruit of the tree and her husband Adam to eat along with her. And after this we read some of the most haunting words that we ever read in the entirety of the Bible. They hear God, the one who made them, the one who loves them, the one who communes with them, the one who is their life. They heard him Walking in the garden. It's one of the most remarkable little phrases that we run past all the time. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden. wonder what the sound of God walking in the garden is like. We've not heard that sound. We don't know what that's like, but the walking of God in the garden would have been a sound that Adam and Eve would have relished. It would have been a sound they would have cherished. Our maker has come. The one who loves us has come. The one who is the very essence of our life has come. But after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read this, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Well, they hide. The same. They hide. They hide because they're ashamed. They hide because they're afraid. First, they were ashamed. In the moment they ate the forbidden fruit, we're told that they knew that they were naked and they did the very best that they could to cobble together some fig leaves and sew some makeshift clothes so they wouldn't feel the exposing vulnerability, the shame that came with sin. The guilt that comes when we know that we've been found out. When it is us with our hand in the cookie jar and mama is looking over our shoulder. That haunting feeling that none of us ever wants to, to feel. That feeling overcome Adam and Eve for the very first time. When they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. They didn't want to see him anymore and so they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But secondly, they were afraid. You see, they knew the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit. God had been very clear about this, that they would surely die. God had told them that. Running through their mind in this moment and hearing the sound of God walking in the garden must have certainly been the sound now that they once associated with life would now associate with almost impending or immediate death. That the sound of an intimate encounter of God's footfall in the garden, the one who loves them, now has become something where they duck behind trees, hoping that he would never find them, no doubt, in order to stay alive. For now to be in God's presence as a sinner is the worst possible experience that any of us could have. To be in the all-searching eye of the holiness of God as Isaiah was in the opening parts of his prophecy. When the train of God's robe fills the temple and the glory of the Lord shines around, him. this prophet, this man of God, one who knows God, one who speaks the words of God, says he's not worthy to dwell in the presence of the Lord, that he's a man of unclean lips, and he lives among a people of unclean lips. It's why we're told that when God comes back in judgment on the day that he does, that those who don't know him will be so frightened at the presence of the glory of God that they will ask that the mountains would fall upon them. It is the scary, scary thing to fall into the glorious hands of a holy God if you are a sinner under the guilt of punishment. And now, Adam and Eve, in the shame and in the fear of the moment of their sin, know that what they have done will require bloodshed. The whole Old Testament teaches us this. John is hinting at it here in the text. He's actually going back to the Old Testament in all of his language. The word here for dwell among us is the word pitch a tent or to tabernacle. And John is recalling the story of Israel in the Old Testament. When they freed from slavery in Egypt or coursing their way across the wilderness, he commands Moses in Exodus 26 to build a tabernacle. Why? Because God wants to dwell with his people again. He had been way up in the sky as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but he wanted to come down. He wanted to be with his people and he said, "So build me a tent." Now it might seem strange. God probably deserves more than a tent. Moses certainly thought so. But but to say that God was asking for a tent was to say he wanted to live in the confines of the people of Israel. That's what Israel was living in. God wanted to move into the neighborhood. He wanted to be your neighbor. He wanted to walk with you in the cool of the day in the garden again. He wants to know his people. He wants to dwell among them. And it was there that they would behold his glory. Something of what John is speaking of here in verse 14. Wasn't it the Shekinah cloud? The glory cloud of God that would come down and meet with Moses at the face of the He would intercede for his people But let's think about that intercession. It wasn't a lot like walking around the garden in the cool of the day, was it? No, that intercession was a bloody mess. For the people of God to even come close to the tabernacle, much less go in. They couldn't go in. They had to approach God with blood. With death. And for the high priest who was only allowed to go into the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, once a year on the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. He went in with a bowl of blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat, which was the very physical presence of God among the people of Israel at that time. We can't go into the presence of God without blood. Adam and Eve knew that in the Garden of Eden. No wonder they were shaking in their boots. No wonder they were ducking behind trees. The whole Old Testament teaches us that for us to be in communion with God, for Him to dwell with us and for us to be in His presence will require death, which means that we're in the middle of a conundrum. We need the presence of God because He is our life and we are made in his image, but we can't be in the presence of God because he is holy, and if we are, we will die. Do you see that is what the entirety of the Old Testament is building up in tension and crescendoing all the way through the final pages of the book of Malachi. That there is a word that had made the world of which we were to be in communion with. But there were words that we believed that have now unmade the world. That have created a barrier between God and man. And it is why there was a word made flesh that had to come into the world to redeem it. Do you see? All of this is true until Jesus comes. John says we beheld his glory. Speaking of Jesus. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we read the words and we just, you know, they kind of roll off our tongue and we behold his glory. That word glory, Old Testament word kavod, means heavy, it means weighty, it's the scariness. It's the scariness of what Isaiah saw when he was there in the presence of the Lord. It means something that is the full substance of something we sometimes We sometimes say, oh, well, there he is in all of his glory, right? Or there she is in all of her glory. And what we mean, the fullness of their being. Well, let me tell you, we want to see God in the fullness of his being. And we don't want to see God in the fullness of his being. Because we're in the crucible of a people who need to live by the presence of the Lord, but who can't live in the presence of the Lord. Because of our sinful estate. And yet John tells us, in Jesus we beheld His glory. Now listen, you can't just behold the glory of God. That's not a small statement. That's an incredibly significant thing. Moses in Exodus 33 climbed the mountain of Mount Sinai behalf of God's people to intercede and to make the request to see the glory of God. And God said, You can't see my glory, because if you see my glory, you will die. But I will, I'll put you here in a little cliff of a rock, and I'll let you see the outstreamings of my glory. And I'll protect you with that rock. But there's no way you can stare at me face to face. Instead, What I'm going to do when I pass by is I'm going to preach you a sermon. I'm going to preach you a sermon on my name. Because what you need is a word. You need to know what this glory is. And when he preached that word, God said, I am the Lord, merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, it started out so well—slow to anger, merciful, gracious, bounding in steadfast love, faithful, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Sin. Tell me more me more. This is the word that that Moses needed to hear this is the word that the people of God need to hear it's his glory all frightening that we can't see. He says I'm going to preach you a word on my name as my glory goes by I am abounding in love and steadfast grace for you and I forgive iniquity and sin but I will by no means clear the guilty well now how does that work? How are you going to forgive iniquity and sin and not clear the guilty? Isn't the very nature of, of forgiving iniquity and sin, meaning you're clearing it. You're you're, you're doing away with it, but you're not guilty, but you're going to forgive. How's that going to happen? Do you see right there in the, the prayer for glory, in, 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 for Moses' desire to see the glory of God, God's giving us a hint at At a coming glory. At a glory we can handle. At a glory that will be given to us. That will come in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when John speaks of beholding the glory of God, he's speaking of the moment where he beheld Jesus' glory, most likely on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where he stood alongside that Moses. Moses who asked to see that glory in Exodus 33. It was there that Peter, James, and John, right, the triumvirate, they're there on the top of that mountain, a similar kind of mountain that Moses had been on. It was there where Jesus was transfigured before him, and they saw his glory. And you know what we're told when they see his glory? It says they fall on their faces, and the word is they're terrified. They're literally afraid to death. Because they need the glory of God, but they they can't handle the glory of God. They need the presence of God, but they can't be in the presence of God. They are drawn to the presence of God, and they are are scared of the presence of God, rightfully so. And it's there on the Mount of Transfiguration with with their heads buried in the dirt, scared to death. They were told Jesus touches them. And he says, rise up and fear not. And it says they lifted up their eyes and only Jesus was there. It's almost like they were back in the garden. They lifted up their eyes and only Jesus was there. That's that's the phrase in Matthew 17. Only Jesus was there. You see, Only Jesus is all we need to be there. Because you see, in in Jesus, the glory of God is revealed. When Jesus is born, the angels break in, and the shepherds cower as the glory of the Lord shines around. We're told that they were, in the King James, sore afraid. You remember that? And what does the angel say? Fear not. For I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people for today in the city of David. A Savior has been born. Do you see, the angels knew that there would be a day later where Jesus would lay his hand on John and remind, almost echo what the angels themselves said to the shepherds on the day where he first came, fear not, because he knew that one day very soon, as the Word made flesh, he would be unmade by the wrath, the judgment of our sin. The unmadeness of your life The brokenness of sin that had wrecked this world and all of history. He took upon Himself on the cross. The Word made flesh was unmade on the cross. And in that unmaking, the potential... For you and I, through faith in Him, was opened up. Because no longer, when we come into the presence of the Lord, do we come as sinners, but we come as saints. We come as those who have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ credited to our account. It's why Jesus, on that night, in that Mount of Transfiguration, could say to John... Fear not because he knew there would be a day where John even now as I preach this morning is in the presence of the glory of God with no fear because the Savior who is Jesus and all that was credited to him has now been credited to all of those who believe in him. And we have passed forth with the one who should have been and was our enemy. He has now become our Father. He is the one who is our love and our security and our care. It is Him in whom embraces us. He has become our life in Christ. When Jesus was made flesh, it was so that He would be unmade in that flesh and that He through the resurrection would be remade in that flesh so that we who are unmade in flesh would be remade in Him. And one day, amazingly, John tells us That when he returns, we will see him. And we will see him not just in the outstreamings of his glory, we will see him face to face. And we will know that in the day that we behold his glory, that no matter what has happened in our lives, And no matter what questions have transpired throughout the course of history and all of existence, that in that moment all will be made right. Oh, the joy. Oh, the wonder of Christmas. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, help us to see it. Help us to once again be captured by it. Help us once again to walk in it. Help us once again to live forever in it. Remake us over and over in the glory of this gospel until the day where we are fully remade in Jesus and we enjoy His presence forevermore. As we prayed at the beginning... Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.